What's up, everybody? Back with another episode of the Dragzine Podcast. And this week, we got another top fuel driver on the show, Josh Hart. Josh, what is going on? Happy to be here, man. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, it, it was funny. I, I watched you win the race. That was awesome. And about two seconds after you crossed the finish line and the wind light came on, my editor hit me up. I was like, we have to get him on the show. I was like, <laughs> He is going to be inundated with everybody and their brother trying to get him on. Let's let him kind of go through that before he comes on here so we can let, let him kind of soak in what you did and what you, you know, which have fun doing there at Gainesville. Yeah, it was uh, it was an unbelievable outreach of uh, communication. That's for sure. Nothing, nothing could explain. My phone was basically useless for two days. Yeah, that, that that's. I'll get that when I'm at a race and people see me on a live feed, they'd be like, Oh, I see you. Oh, I see, you know, I'll get those at least once. I couldn't imagine winning a national event, let alone winning your first national event that your phone basically would probably just turn into like just a buzzing toy. It, it truly was. It was a uh, 5,000 plus uh, Facebook and social media requests. Um, I looked down at my phone at midnight uh, Sunday night after we won the race and there was 1100 plus text messages. Wow. I was like, man, I didn't even think people had my phone number like that. So <laughs> You're going through, I know 1,100 people? <laughs> yep. Well, I started digging into a little bit about you before we did the show. And I saw in an interview where you talked about where your, your career literally started drag racing as a test and two night at Gainesville and a Ford Lightning. Did you ever think in your wildest dreams after making a trip down the track that you would go from a Ford Lightning to a top fuel dragster? Never, ever. You know, when we started in that truck, um, I had gotten in a lot of trouble with speeding tickets and stuff like that. And uh, somebody said, hey, you know, you're a really good driver. Why don't we try it on the drag strip? So we just cruised up there and, man, I had a ball. And I drove the speed limit all the way home. It's funny. You see a lot of people that it starts out like I, I write a lot of features on guys and there's usually uh, on some of the older guys, the old school guys, they basically say I was getting in a lot of trouble street racing and I needed a better outlet for it. And it's good that you turned over to that. And that, that had to be just kind of wild. You know, when, when a lot of people get exposed to formal drag racing for the first time, it's kind of a it's an interesting concept, isn't it? Oh, it's it's out of this world. And, you know, what was it like? Do you, can you remember back what it was like kind of going to the track those first couple of times? And like, did you, when did you realize that the bug had bit you pretty hard? Well, we, we took the Ford Lightning, which is like the heaviest brick you can possibly think of to force through the air. And I think I broke every single thing known to man on that truck. I still have it. It was my very first truck. And uh, I realized that I got bit when, um, I told my wife, I said, Hey, I need to swing by the bank. I'm going to buy this super comp dragster. And, uh, she goes, well, we'll just swing by the ATM. I said, I don't think the ATM is going to cover this one. <laughs> that right there. That, that's awesome. That, that kind of shows what someone doesn't under fully understand what journey they're about to go to. Let's go to the ATM. Uh, I don't think ATMs in the United States spit out that much cash, sweetie. <laughs> it, and that's also awesome at the same time that you went through that experience of what a lot of us have gone through, the uh, eventual carnage and destruction of, I want to go faster. And you find out real quick, uh, horsepower likes to find the weakest link to break. 
Yeah, absolutely. In my, in my super comp car, it was the first time that I experienced tire shake. And I remember breaking the planetary gears and I just looked at it and I thought, how in the world is that possible? But uh, the dollar signs started adding up really quick. Yeah, especially in a super comp grade transmission. And yeah, that, that's another one of those things where people don't understand what it's like unless they've broken parts. When you break something you're not supposed to break, like you're not really mad at first. You're just going, how did I actually do that? <laughs> What was it like, you know, did, did you go straight from a Lightning to a Super Comp Dragster? Was there anything in between at all? Yeah, we built a, a 2003 Cobra Mustang that we got into the nines. And um, that was my first actual win. We won a bracket race. It's called Dial for Dollars. And I think my light was like a .005 or something like that. And I remember everybody talking in the pits about how much they didn't like me because it was my very first race also. Um, but then we went to uh, super gas, super comp, top dragster, alcohol, and then top fuel. Yeah, that, that kind of leads into the next question. You, you, you did the, the, the steps because I've seen racers start all the way down at like junior dragsters to find their way up. And then you get people that like literally like a funny car was their first official race car. You know, <laughs> what was it like kind of going through that progression of speed for you? You know, starting out in a truck and going up to, you know, like fast bracket cars. Um, I would say my truck was fun. The, uh, the Cobra was fun, super comp, super gas, top drag. So that was cool. Cause I could work with my guys here at Bernie's. So like we'd go to the track, we weekend warrior it and catch out back on the way home type of thing. Um, so that, that was cool. And, and getting acclimated to the speed was something that I just wanted to do. Um, but it ultimately just wasn't enough, you know? That's another one of those reoccurring themes we all seem to run into is that you always like, there, there's some guys like I had Jeff Verdi on last week, a bracket racer. And he said, you know what? I don't have any desire to go faster. Like if I could maybe, but you know, I'm good. Just bracket racing, doing, doing that whole deal. And then you get the guys that are like, that was fun. What can I do to go faster? And it just, it, it's a hard feeling to describe, isn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah. You can't, you can't really describe it. I, that's probably the most commonly asked question that I've, that I've heard so far is what does it feel like in a top fuel dragster? And um, I've come up with kind of a, a way to describe it. And uh, best I can say is it's like wrestling a 25 foot Python and hoping that it goes your way for 3.7 seconds. That's actually the, that's a unique description. I've heard a lot of them talked about on the show, but that totally makes sense. I, I am going to use that going forward because that's, yeah, it's it, it, the other thing people talk about is it's like the more you do fast dragster racing or fast car racing period that things slow down, but in a top fuel car, it's like, you almost have to predict where it might or might not go. Don't you? Yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, in the alcohol car, about 600 feet, it kind of plateaued, you know, and you could see the scoreboard and you can see the fans and you can feel the other person coming and the top fuel car, it'll pull and pull and pull until it destroys itself. Yeah. It, it's just like, uh, it, it's like releasing a toddler on sugar. It just goes until it runs out of fuel. and just crashes. Yep. Yep. It's like, like my one-year-old, she's a little lipo battery. She's, she's golden. And then you'll find her falling asleep all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, my niece is the same way as like when she's on, it's like, 
constant going just it's there it's wide open and then they're not and that's <laughs> that's a lot like a top fuel car it's either going or even you know some of the, a dragster like a top alcohol dragster it's either going wide open or it's not yep now i i, I love the the alcohol classes just because it's it's a, like you said the weekend warrior kind of deal you see a lot of families and groups of friends that get together to, to kind of get into that whole deal how much did doing that help you kind of prepare you for top fuel racing um, I would say it, it very well prepared me. You know, I was in alcohol for five years and those guys deserve an award. You know, it shouldn't be sportsman racing. You know, it, it should be, you know, still pro in my opinion. It's the second fastest class and uh, they don't get enough credit. I loved alcohol racing um, and they deserve an award just to get to the track. I mean, the financial burden that it puts on the, these smaller teams and stuff, it, it's pretty uncomprehendable. But um in my preparation, I, I was really, really blessed in the alcohol car. I felt very safe in the car. And uh, there was only one other spot to move up to. You know, you sum that up perfectly, that these teams, that they, they should really get something. I, I love watching those cars and the funny cars because of how close the racing is and how fast that they're still doing quarter mile deal. And, you know, the injected alcohol cars, I, I did a story with the Haradas about you know what it takes to run one of those cars and i learned a lot i didn't realize how close those cars an injected car was to a full-blown nitro car yeah they're they're very evenly paired and it's just a great group it's a it's an awesome like family help each other out type environment um not as cutthroat as other classes and you know everybody's friends until you're on the line but i mean i've seen people and i've been a part of actually loaning competitors engines you know i mean whatever it took to get them back up to the line what was it um was it the finals this year of the guy that was racing megan meyer they they gave him an entire like he went to his competitor they gave him a whole engine to make it happen i mean that's like that's like you know handing someone a briefcase full of money i mean that that shows trust in like you know, just like you said, that camaraderie, it's like a, it's like alcohol racers are almost like they're like a tribe, a horsepower tribe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we all kind of stuck together and, and everything was great until you were on the line. Yeah. Everybody has friends till three bulbs are lit. That's how it works. <laughs> and, you know, an- another cool thing is I was reading up on you that you won the U.S. Nationals twice in alcohol dragster and that's winning Indy once in any class is awesome. Winning it twice is, you know, that's something people can hang their whole career on. You know, what's it like to be a multi-time winner at Indy? Um, you know, the first time, and that was my first national win ever. Oh, wow. It, it was unbelievable. You know, I mean, we, we busted our butts. It was you know, three o'clock in the morning and we had just grenaded a brand new engine, had one run on it. Uh, we we didn't even know we were going to get in the show you know but um to do it twice was awesome i mean we made history i think we were the only person that had done that in the alcohol ranks at that time and um i i mean i was just super super blessed it was it was it was a great experience and actually we we won four times in a row we won two regionals back to back and two nationals back to back so that's a whole lot of rounds that we never got beat at Indianapolis. And then we actually run it up the year after that. <laughs> wow. That's like, that, that's one of those things you, uh, that, uh, 
that Brian Loans would announce that he would go, wow, you know, like that that's something you don't hear a lot, especially because well, I was at the NMCA finals last year talking with racers and, you know, to them, the NMC finals at Indy, that's the biggest of the big deal because they don't get to race at Indy. And one of the things a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, Indy, it's something special. When you roll through the gates there, it's like everybody elevates their game to the next notch, right? Mm-hmm. So going in there and winning that many rounds against, I mean, at Indy, that brings all the West Coast players. Everybody comes out there. So to win that many rounds at Indy, that's a, that's an achievement. Yeah, my team was, you know, super, super consistent. And um, that's another thing. I mean, you just – you get a good group of guys, you got to hold on to them because that's where the real magic happens. It's with the team. It's you know, The driver's got to cut a light and hold on for three to five seconds, but – you know, the, the guys is where the magic happens. Oh, totally. The, the crew guys, I always like just like taking pictures and watching crew guys because the level of focus that they have, and it's it's like watching like a, a horsepower ballet, you know, just how everybody's so in sync with what they do. And it doesn't matter like any car that requires a team, alcohol cars, top dragster cars, nitro cars, heads up cars. It's always interesting to watch how the teams work right after a run. It's so... You, you could tell who's serious about it because of how in sync they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a well-orchestrated symphony. If you pay attention to even the top fuel teams, I mean, they're not messing around. They, they know where they're supposed to be when they're supposed to be there. The only time I've seen fuel teams seem relatively relaxed is like at match race deals, like up at Norwalk at the night under fire. Like they're still taking it seriously, but you could tell where they're like, there's a little bit of less like there's not national event pressure on their chest. And that, that's a real thing, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the amount of effort that it takes to get to the racetrack is something that most fans and spectators could not fathom, you know? So to get this operation, to get to the starting line and make a successful pass, let alone go rounds, um, you got to experience it. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 I always joke that there's, there's a lot, there's three different kind of sections to a race weekend. There's the trip there, which could, God knows what could happen getting there. <laughs> there's getting to the track, dealing with whatever happens there. And then there's getting home. And then there's just, there's so much more stuff that gets piled into that. You know, you just don't throw, any race car into a box and just show up at the track, especially like an alcohol car or a nitro car, because there's, you, you have to have that car ready to go before you get there. Yeah. And that, that's where I go back to saying what I said about the a fuel and top alcohol cars. It's like, it costs just as much money for them to show up and participate. You know, it, it's, it's an awesome accomplishment to show up to the racetrack with your operation. And it's not like the other thing you notice too is you can't take an alcohol car to a test and tune session to get that thing dialed in, you know, unless you're at like a top level track because they're not going to have anywhere close to national event level prep to get one of those cars safely down the track. Correct. And I mean, we, we tried that a couple of times. We tried showing up to a test and tune in Gainesville and I'm sure it was fun for the fans, but you know, we just hazed the tires and, and put it back in the box. You know, I mean, you just couldn't get enough traction. Oh, I've, I've been at a local track when an alcohol funny car showed up and I was like, we got to stop what we're doing. Cause I want to see what's going to happen. Cause 
if they get this thing down the track, this dude is going to be wheeling this car like his life depends on it because there's there's not going to be enough prep to make this thing stick. And kudos to them. They were smart. I mean, they they only made maybe 150, 200 foot runs, but man, that was that was an eventful couple hundred feet for that driver. Because <laughs> it, it it's it's a whole, especially with with the uh, the screw blowing cars, because there it's like you're trying to calm them down as much as possible to get them to want to do anything other than the annihilate the tires or, or try to kill you. Yep, absolutely correct. Now, before we move on to the next section, I got to thank our sponsor of this episode, Airflow Research, AFR, the original CNC ported cylinder head. From the street enthusiast to the hardcore racer, AFR has designed a cylinder head for your application with one goal in mind, just to go fast. Now, going off of our sponsor, the AFR makes a lot of awesome products. You know, they make great street vehicle products and make great Ford heads and stuff like that, like you might've put on your lightning. But it brings us to another thing with nitro and alcohol cars is uh, it's not exactly parts you can go pick up at the local auto zone to, uh, to make a hit. Is there? No, no, not at all. You, you got to do a lot of research on that. Is that something that I, that kind of, I guess, as you moved up the rank shocked you is how much parts inventory and stuff you'd have to buy specialty stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to put it in perspective, you know, um, we ordered our clutch discs for this season and it was like $65,000 and you just try to put that in perspective and it's like, wow. You know? <laughs> and, and that may not even get you all the way through the season, you know, a consumable product that costs $65,000. Meanwhile, you know, uh, other people complain about, you know, a package of golf balls. Yeah. It's yeah. like, Oh, your hobby's expensive. Let me tell you about mine. <laughs> no, you, you want to, you want to say thank you to, you know, Brad Anderson and Bonifant, all those guys. Um, but I mean, now we're in the, the big leagues. We're playing with, you know, John force and, and a lot of DSR stuff. And this stuff is just beautiful. I mean, it is like jewelry when it comes out of the box and to think that you're literally going to blow it to pieces or, or use it a couple of times and throw it away. Most people can't fathom that. Oh no. Like when I explain to people the drag racing, just motorsports in general, but specifically drag racing, they give, you could see them doing the math in their head, questioning your sanity for what you want to do, let alone how much it's costing. And you're like, well, I mean, you know, for that, however long you're in the car, it's a really fun ride. And then, you know, I hate my time and I hate spare time and I hate money. So works out great. <laughs> That's pretty fair. It, it, like you said, the, the jewelry isn't like, that's another cool thing, like going to a show like PRI or something like that. I always encourage people to go to some of these trade shows or stop by a vendor's booth just to look at some of the cool stuff. Like you go to the MBE, BME booth and, and look at those, the, the pistons and all that stuff. And just like you said, it, it's, it's man jewelry. It's amazing. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself. I, I sent out uh, during COVID probably 150 connecting rods that we had used over the last year. And um, I just gave them to the fans because I mean, they're so, they're so pretty Yeah, and I couldn't find another use for them. (laughs) I've seen connecting rods used to make furniture. I've seen them used to make hero card holders. I've seen them used to make a grill like the framework for a grill and I'm like, that's awesome. But that is literally the most expensive grill in the history of man. 
<laughs> I agree. And the other cool thing was uh, I always like it. I know um, Daryl Gwynn sells par- like used parts and uh, a few of the teams up at the night under fire, they literally had tables set out of like blown up parts. And I'm going through looking at this and my wife's like kind of looking at me, looking at this. She goes, why are you looking at it so closely? I'm like, one, I'm trying to figure out how they did this. And two, I'm looking at the price on this, what they're selling it for used and blown up versus what they paid for it. I'm like, that hurts my soul. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things too. Like it could look perfectly fine, but that $175 connecting rod, if it happens to stretch on the 29th run could cost you $80,000. So there's a lot of preventative maintenance as well. Oh yeah. The, the wear items on fuel cars, actually just any fast car is just, it, it, it's mind numbing. You know, I'm talking to pro mod guys that are like, I have 25 runs on a set of rods and then I pull them. They still might be good, but you never know that. Tw- like they tell us 25. I don't want to go to 26 because you don't know what could happen on 25 and a half. It's a, it's a very expensive lesson. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a very good way to put it. It's an expensive lesson. And it's, it's not good when you, uh, when you make a miscalculation, you know, it's, it sucks when you got to put a little hashtag on a, on a slick, but then when you got to do the hashtags, you know, when you're marking down runs on everything else, it, it, it starts to hurt. What's the one part that you have to buy in bulk besides clutch discs that you just, when you have to, when you see that invoice, it's like, Oh, this, this hurts. Um, in the alcohol class, it was tires. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We uh, we had a bad rash of chunked tires, and we would you know we would try seasoning them. We you know we'd buy a bunch of them, let them sit for a year like firewood, hoping that the the compound would harden up just a little bit. Um, we tried everything to make them last longer, but uh, you know one race. And you've got chunks of rubber just pulling out of those things. Oh, man, that's uh, that's one of those deals where it's uh, the the local track probably loved you guys for dropping those off to put on the, the static drag if you were doing that. Yes, oh. that's probably where I'm at. And um, as far as the top fuel stuff goes, my crew chief is uh, he's awesome. I mean, we didn't hurt anything throughout Gainesville. I mean, a couple small you know, a couple pistons, I believe, and maybe a rocker, but uh, no, no worries yet. I'm sure I'll find out. Yeah. It's, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when in a fuel car, when you get to a, when you get to add that badge of, I blowed something up real good, you know, on there. <laughs> and then you got to hope that, you know, you keep it under a certain amount because it's, that lets you know you when I see someone, I think it was one one of the force girls, you know, grenade an engine and you know, rip the supercharger in half. I'm like, oh, there's about thirty plus thousand dollars that just, you know, flew off into space. Yeah, I when I was actually licensing with Vandergriff, um I he he says that I, I came off the gas just enough and then I pressed the gas again. Um and I'll never forget when we popped the blower on one of my test runs. When I got out of that thing, I was like, man, I'm so glad I don't own this thing. But uh, now I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's, 
Let's talk about that for a second, because I love talking to nitro racers about their first experiences in a nitro car, because they are all wildly different. And it's, it's one of those things you do not forget it. No. You know, did you, did you get to, did they have you sit in the car the first time ever when they did the fire up to get you used to it? Yeah. So like the warm up procedure and the alcohol car versus top fuel was totally different. So I botched that up so bad. I mean, I felt like, yeah. <laughs> and uh, when you're on the jack stands, it felt the same, you know, a little louder, you could hear the blower behind your head. And I was like, ah, I got this, you know, no big deal. When it's on the ground. <laughs> totally different. I, do you think I may have made a miscalculation of my confidence? Yep. I'm sitting at the, uh, at the, the tree, you know, and I'm going, well, you idiot, you got yourself into this. You can't check it out. Now you got to hit the gas. You know? Yeah. It's like a roller coaster. You're at the top. It's like, well, I'm already here. Yep. Yep. And then, uh, you know, I, I hit the gas. My reaction time was probably like a five, you know, I sat there forever, way too long. And, um, my neck felt like a hyperextended slinky. Oh, you know, it just kind of twisted, like, you know, and it was almost like slow motion. You could see the whole car just twist. And by the time it had come back down, you've already went 300 feet. So you better shut it off. You know, I mean, it was just something I could have never planned for. I imagine it being like one of those things you see, like, like a new, like a slow-mo, like comedy action sequence where it's like, everything's just kind of happening you're trying to process it as it happens and like hoping that things are going to go as they're supposed to go. Right. That's best way I've ever heard it described. It's, it's funny again, that like, you know, Scott Palmer had a story about that. It's like, you know, you, you don't realize what's happening until it's already happened your first few passes. And that's, that's something you got to overcome quickly. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then, you know, after the first pass, they're like, okay, let's, now this time you're going to take it to 600 feet. And I'm like, wait a minute, I got to do it again. Yeah, what? <laughs> but uh, we made three passes that day. And, and the last pass, somebody came by me and they go, hey, make sure your chin strap is tight. And I thought, well, where were you at the first pass? You know, <laughs> but uh, that's, that's the secret to success. It's, it's no joke. You, you keep your chin down because it pulls you so hard that you know, your eyes will be level when it pushes you back. That's yeah. I was going to say, I figured there'd be someone there giving you some like tips about, you know, Hey, don't, don't have your mouth open. Make sure you're not fully clinched. Wear a mouthpiece. <laughs> you know, that, that's maybe, maybe you need to start like a checklist for new beginners to like, here, you want your top, your top fuel license. Read this first before you do anything. Actually, uh, Mike Booker called me uh, and we spoke before he took his license passes. He goes, do you have any tips? And I said, make sure your head's not touching the roll cage and make sure that your chin strap is tight and lower than you think it should be. <laughs> How do you do? Trust me. Just trust me. Yep. <laughs> well, it, 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 another cool thing that I've got to see that, you know, fans might not get to see is like racers getting belted in and it's borderline violent watching like some of you guys like rip on these straps and like it makes my collarbones hurt to watch but you kind of need to do that don't you yeah it's definitely a process i mean my wife asked me if i was ever claustrophobic or anything like that and i said if that thought enters into your mind you shouldn't even be close to one of these cars oh, because that, 
once you're strapped in, I mean, you are literally a piece of the car. That is absolutely no joke. My buddy keeps his, his super comp dragster, bracket dragster here. And eventually I'm going to try to get my, you know, make some runs and get a license in that thing. And the first time I got into that car, mind you, he's a lot shorter than me. So my knees are automatically on the dash, like because of where the pedals are. I'm inside this car. I'm like, this is going to take some getting used to before we even start this thing up. Cause I want to be comfortable in here beforehand. And if you've never been in a dragster before, it's a different experience. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's no room for anything. No, no, you have to be very comfortable. And uh, the, the lesson that he's, he, he constantly talks about that he learned the hard way is always make sure the power's on before you belt yourself into a car. Yep. Like that, he goes, it sucks to get in the car. You go to start it, you know, cause he goes up fully dressed. And he's like, I go to start it. Power's not on. I have to get out, go start the power. So it, <laughs> it, he literally put like a note on there that says power on to remind himself. Smart guy. Yeah. He, he, it, I think that's another thing that a lot of uh, us drag racers is uh, once we smash our hand about the third time we realize maybe I should make a reminder about this. <laughs> Cause you're not always going to remember. Yeah. Most drag racers are masochists. They, they enjoy the pain. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, or you figure out a way to circumvent certain amounts of the pain. I know I, I it's one of those lessons I learned. I forgot to turn nitrous bottles on one time or, or I forgot to uh, arm my nitrous system. So I literally put on the dashboard of my Trans Am a sticky note and taped it to there. It says nitrous stupid. So I always remember, like right there front and center. So I can't, Get, and people get my car and they'd ask i'm like just trust me you, it's one of those things i did one time and i was like you know what i don't want to deal with that again because you feel like an idiot yeah i i actually put a picture of my wife right next to my parachute lever and uh you know if the situation gets a little too crazy you got to look down at that picture every now and again remind yourself you know even in the heat of the moment there's there's other things so yeah, that that I mean, that's that's something I think all drag racers kind of and racers period is that there's a mentality of when you are in that car, you are 10 foot tall, bulletproof, invincible, and you're ready to go as fast as possible. And that can be a problem sometimes because you can run out of talent or real estate in a hurry or sometimes both. And that's not a good situation. Yeah, I I um, even in first round, you know, against Clay Milliken if you played that footage back, you know, the car stepped out probably about 600 feet or so. And, you know, you start thinking, I got it, I got it, I got it. And then all of a sudden you're completely sideways and everything's happening so fast. You're like, well, you know, I better just take my foot off the gas. You know, yeah. I think I made a slight tactical error here. Yeah. So it's always nice when she straightens back out and settles down, but uh, you know, that's, that's, whatever your threshold is. Now you don't, you don't strike me as the kind of racer that will make a crew chief nervous due to their rambunctious nature. You seem to be the kind of racer that is going to make the calculated and right decisions and not try to overdrive stuff too often. Have you had any moments that stick out in your mind where it was like, wow, that was, that was kind of sketchy. Yeah, I, um, I, had a moment in the alcohol car where I know I pushed it too hard. Um, we were in the finals, a lot of pressure. Um, it would have been our fourth win in a row in Atco, New Jersey. And um, we thought we had it locked down. 
going up into the finals and uh, I had the car sideways. I mean, it instantly went into smoke. I pedaled it. It sat sideways the other way and I stayed in it until the finish line. I was so mad. And um, some people had some pictures of the car on two wheels when it crossed the finish line and it was not the two wheels front or rear. It was on its side. Oh. And, um, you know, I, I got a nice talking to by Dave Moan and uh, he said, you know, you better never do that again. And, you know, I, it was just one of those situations, you know, you, you, you're in it to win it. And that, that was my lesson, how to not drift a dragster. Yeah. Yeah. Drifting in a dragster is not a, a sport for a reason because that, that length kind of, uh, you know, physics tells you that when it whips one way, when it's going to whip back the other way, it's going to do it in a big and not happy manner. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I was reckless and um, shame on me. Now, you know, it, it takes an entire team to win at one of these events, you know, and how did your team help you at Gainesville win? You know, what talk, talk to us about your team and, you know, how they put you in that position to get that blue hat. I'll tell you what, they are magicians. You know, uh, when we were in qualifying or even testing the week of, I was not comfortable at all. You know, I hadn't driven for a year. Um, new operation, didn't even know all the crew guys' names. I was still meeting people um, in qualifying because we had a couple of guys that helped us out in testing, and then they switched up on me when we went into qualifying. So as the weekend progressed, you can tell my reaction times were terrible. I mean, just terrible. So finally, I sat down with Ron Douglas and I said, I need you to make these adjustments. And he goes, okay, well, that's good. We're not used to people reporting that kind of stuff. And then my tree reaction times, I mean, everything just kind of came all together. It was like the stars aligned. So those, those guys are, those guys are where it's at. I mean, they're, I felt like I was more in the way, you know, I mean, they're, they're amazing. That, that's interesting that, you know, to hear you talk about that and the way you have to settle into something like that. And usually, you know, in that situation, just meeting crew guys and a crew's first time out, it's, it, it could be a little bit of a rough road, but it sounds like you guys kind of like kind of dialed it in and got done what you had to get done, you know, in a hurry. Yeah. I mean, no exaggeration. You're literally trusting these people with your life. You know, if you make a mistake at 330 mile an hour, all bets are off. And as we got to know each other throughout the weekend, it really was magical. I mean, they, they didn't miss a beat. They gave me an excellent hot rod all weekend. It was super consistent and I got very comfortable very fast. And I think that that speaks volumes again, from a driver's point of view, that your comfort level paid off that you could, when you're in there, it's like uh, when you see guys, you know, big MMA fan, guys that aren't tight, the guys that are loose, those are the guys you will typically see go out and do well because they're not thinking about a million and one things. They're there to just think about their job and that's it and enjoy it. Yep. You're exactly right. I mean, I've, I've had the rug yanked out from underneath me before in business and in life. So, I mean, I stay really super low key, um, try to be humble, kind to everybody and, Ron Douglas does the same thing. I mean, he's super down to earth. We have the same demeanor and um, it's a great partnership. Yeah. And that, that's another interesting thing is that it, it's rare to see a driver and crew chief that are polar opposites 
succeed because you need someone that can, especially I think with the crew chief that can mesh with the driver because it pulls them out of that comfort zone. So I'm sure it's got to be just as uh, reassuring to have someone that's kind of on that same level as you, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and if we have a problem, I mean, we squash it immediately. I mean, it's kind of a gentleman's agreement. We're both old school. So um, I couldn't be happier with my team. Yeah. It's, it's always interesting when you see the like two type a rowdy personalities try to be a crew chief and driver combination, because it's, it can get a little interesting, testy and objects can sometimes fly. If you listen to some of the old stories about some of these old school drivers and crew chiefs, they'd, uh, they'd squash it by throwing stuff and screaming at each other. <laughs> Not my way. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's definitely uh, it, it, at that speed level. It's, you know, you can't have that kind of uh, distractions, if you will. Now, your operation is a straight throwback to the early days of top fuel racing, which I love. You're a guy running a speed shop that races a nitro dagster. You know, that's like what they used to do kind of back in the day. I guess, you know, what is it that your guys' shop does exactly? You know, how, how does it transition to, you know, a nitro deal? So my wife and I started Bernie's um, with 300 bucks. You know, um, we don't have, you know, wealthy parents or, or big time investors. We built it up to what it is today. We met some great people along the way that helped us get to the next level. And, um, you know, she started doing automotive detailing and I started doing the superchargers. And that business has now turned into 100,000 square feet under roof and we own an entire city block and we'll do anything that you can dream of automotive um superchargers turbos paint uh but i mean like full show car restoration interior you dream it we'll build it to me as a customer that's pretty reassuring with you know if you're going to make a, an investment in a high-end build and you look over in the corner of the shop and oh there's a top fuel rig there if you know anything, you're like, all right, these guys kind of know what they're doing. If they're playing with a top fuel car, you know, it, it really, honestly, it transitions from like a shop like you described to that kind of racing because you have to be detail oriented to succeed. Yeah, I've actually, I've actually experienced both sides of that. You know, um, we had a nice transition period where uh, there was a lot of turbulence, believe it or not, when the top fuel stuff and even alcohol stuff started really getting serious. We'd have customers come in and say, you know, I'm not paying for your race fuel this weekend. Oh, wow. You know, it kind of put things in perspective where I was almost afraid to put it in the public eye. I almost moved it off the property. Um, but then you start realizing real quickly that that's not our client anyway. No. Now we're building $100,000 plus cars. We have a 16-month waiting list. Um and we're, we're not messing around. I mean, we got people that come in here and build $300,000 cars. And for those people, we have a two-year, 24,000-mile warranty. And we'll change the oil in their Honda Civic if they ask us to. You know, um, but we just had to change and, and adapt. You know, that, that's, where, that's where we landed. Now, kind of going off of that again, you know, it, it's like a, it, it's cool to see like an independent team going out and racing at this level. And then what was it like, you know, to be that independent racer? And then you basically ran through the top shelf teams at Gainesville and beat them all. Was that satisfying to you to like, 
kind of be that to carry the independent racer flag like that? Yeah, I, I loved it. I mean, I, you always look up to John Forrest and Don Schumacher and, and you can't, you can't get away from what they've done for the sport. Right. But um, to show up brand new team, you know, not multi-million dollar by any means and whoop up on the big boys is, is pretty cool. But I'll tell you what was even more impressive was all of the drivers and all the persona, you know, about being cutthroat and, and stuck up and multi-million dollar, blah, blah, blah. Very, very kind people. Everybody was kind. Mike Salinas greeted me in the pits, Don Schumacher, John Force, they all called me to congratulate me. Um, and the big one was Steve Torrance. You know, like we talked for four or five minutes in the staging lanes. He was cool as hell. You know, um, it's just understanding the mindset and the pressure that we're under when you're, when you're driving one of these things. It's, you know, I, I come from a background, at least wrenching on cars with one of my good friends on a small tire radial car. And it, it's the heads up racing world. I think, you know, maybe you can agree or disagree with this, that in heads up racing, it really is a brotherhood. It's like, you're, you're there to beat people, but at the same time, you know, you don't want to be that person that kind of comes off as a dick because then no one wants to help you if you need help. And it's just, it's, it's not like that mentality, which is what I love about drag racers. Yeah. It, it's definitely exactly the way you just described it. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was cool. It's, it's very cool to, to be the independent guy out there, but um, I think everybody wants what Steve Torrance has, you know? Oh, I, I love Steve Torrance for the simple fact that he does not have to answer to a corporate sponsor. He can say whatever he wants. He can get into a small shoving watch with Cameron Ferrer. He's happy to be the bad guy. He don't care. He's there to race. Absolutely. That to me is like, it's almost like you could see that transition kind of happen when the corporate money really started to kind of change drag racing because like big time because racers had to like, I'm not going to say clean up their act, but they had to be more corporate friendly. And it, to me, that's, that's not drag racing. No, no. And, and you're exactly right. I mean, on the flip side of the Cameron for, you know, that, that incident, you know, you got to look at how much pressure Steve was under. Nobody oh, yeah. thought about that. Oh, totally. And it's, yeah, that's, it's one of those things where if you were in favor of what Steve did, oh, well, you just want people fighting. No, I want people to show emotion. You know, do I do I want to see Steve Torrance beat someone with a helmet at the top end? Absolutely not. But I'm I'm good to see some people jawing each other and screaming and yelling. And the thing is, that one just happened to get caught on camera. I guarantee you, there has been there's been multiple episodes of this fights happening in the pits that you never hear about because there wasn't a camera around. I agree hundred percent. I've heard the stories and I've heard some of the stuff that, that's, that's gone. Now there's a few years ago with the elite guys got to do scrap with another team in it. You know, there just happened to be a camera there. You know, when John force got into a shovey match with Petra got and Kurt Johnson had to, had to separate them. You know, it's people don't care until there's a camera there. Yep. You're exactly right. And the thing is, as racers, you'll have that heated moment. You'll say some heated stuff. Nine and a half times out of 10, we calm down. Hey, man, I'm sorry. And then you go on. But now guess what? Steve Torrance, every time he comes up, has people 
that are 100% rooting for him or against him. And it, to me, that builds that, that rivalry up a little bit more. That it gets people interested. And that's what NHRA needed. And it, I mean, you look at street outlaws. I've been to a lot of no prep events where they are there racing with no cameras. And it reminds me a lot of the old days of NHRA where people were like, they're a big chief fan. They're wearing their big chief shirt and they're going to lose their minds when he makes a burnout. That's what we need in nitro racing is when Josh Hart makes a burnout and Josh Hart's fans are there screaming and yelling and telling other fans, this is my dude. That's what we need. We need more of that. Love it. Now, you know, kind of going off of that, you know, what's it like to run as a single car team in this modern super team era? You know, what kind of challenges do you guys have faced? And, you know, what, what are some of the advantages you see? Um, I would say as far as advantages go, we don't have to deal with all the corporate stuff. Um, we've got some really great people behind us. Uh, I've been able to, you know, obtain all of my sponsors uh, throughout my career. So um, as far as that goes, I mean, I feel like we do enough business with them where it's a long-term arrangement. So I don't necessarily worry as much as maybe they do with their sponsors. Um and then the, the people, you know, the personal touch, you know, I want Ron Douglas around for a long time and, you know, the team, I'm all about loyalty and creating the uh, family environment. And I feel like you really lose that when you get too big. Yeah, I, I, I could agree with that where you see a lot of turnover. And then at the same time, wasn't it Salinas that bought all those guys, Harley Davidson's after he won? I heard that. Yes. I mean, it like, I was in India. I saw like they they bring them to the events and they're all lined up. And I'm like that right there. Like that's one of those things where if you had the money to do it, to help your crew out, like every driver in the world would 100 percent do that. That's like that's <laughs> like that's like the, the quarterback buying the offensive lineman dinner and whatnot. You're doing that because those guys are there to help you. And again, I think it, it, it once again, it's it's what those smaller teams kind of do in that that level of tightness. It's not like a group of mercenaries per se. It's, it's friends and family. Yeah, it really is. I mean, and, and I try to build a long-term relationship with all of our employees. I mean, most of the people that work for me under the Bernie speed shop flag, they've been here 10 years plus. Yeah. I saw yeah. that on your website. Um, just a really, really good group of guys. Yeah. Again, it's, and I think it also kind of rolls back into two is that you've got to keep things fun. Even at, even at nitro racing, there has to be a certain element of like fun that you have to have to keep it from grinding you down because going to multiple events, I mean, you, I'm sure you saw it in an alcohol car. It's, it's a grind. Yeah. There was one, one year where I think we did 17 races and I was on the road for 21 weeks. Of course I was before my daughter was born, but at the end of it, you're just done. I mean, it wears you out. It's monotonous. If you start feeling like the circus, <laughs> you know, I was ready to be home. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's definitely, especially if you're driving the truck and trail or you're riding to and from, I've done a few of the, you know, the 12, 13 hour rides in a truck and trailer. And th again, that's why I include that in the sections of an event, because getting to the event, you're all excited. Yay. We're going racing. And then three days of beating yourself into the ground. And if nothing bad happened, you're only going to be slightly tired. If you've had, you know, catastrophic failures and bad luck, when you're getting ready to go to that truck and you lose in the first round to go home, 
it's it seems like a 25 hour ride home yeah that was probably the most frustrating part about the alcohol class i mean we always got pushed to the side which is not right and i mean i was driving the truck and setting up the canopy and getting the car ready you know i had another guy with me but it's just you start really getting beat down you know you're driving from you know here to vegas and it's it's three days just to get there type of situation you know and then we didn't even qualify for a regional event so you're going home just you know ready to be done and yeah setting up a pit for a heads up car is definitely it's not lawn chairs and battery chargers and (laughs) if, if there's one thing i've learned that is not fun is setting up an awning on a stacker or a big rig that right there is like (laughs) <laughs> it's one of those processes. It's like, it's like dental work. You know, you got to get it done. You just bite it down. You're like, all right, I just, I got to do this. I got to power through it. You're exactly right. Yeah. It's, it's rough. And yeah, it's, but again, you, you complain about it. You kind of grumble about it, but then guess what? The second someone goes, let's go racing. You're like, all right. Yeah. The truck <laughs> gassed up. Let's go. Like, it, What's wrong with us? Why do we do this? We enjoy the pain. Yeah. Yeah. The pay, you know, it could be as bad as like I was watching some of the dirt track racing on flow, you know, dirt track racing is not cheap. And it was like a a limited late model. And they're like, they're racing for $500 to win in the a main. I'm like that that's upsetting. (laughs) That's just, Oh, (laughs) in a dirt car. And God knows that's not cheap to race any of those. No, it doesn't make sense. Does it? No, no, we're we're idiots, but it's fun. It, it, it beats. Uh, I tell people it beats chasing women and drinking chasing whiskey most of the time. Yep, I agree with you. Been with my wife eighteen years, and I don't know anything else, so I'll just drop race cars. Yeah, that's keep. That's uh, that's. I try to explain that to, to my wife is that having a husband as a racer is the greatest built-in babysitter on earth because I'm literally at three places. I'm at home. I'm at work. I'm at the racetrack. That's it. Very well described. <laughs> like there, there is no place else that you know that you want to go. It's not that I hate people a lot, but you know I, I don't want to go to a bar I, that costs money that I can't put in the race car. This makes no sense. This doesn't compute. <laughs> now, my editor proposes to me having kind of changed this question up. You know, you know, what's your next big goal in rag racing? Do you want to be a full time pro? Are you going to chase the sponsors to do something like that, or are you just happy kind of you know being the occasional guy like that shows up and just every touring pro is like oh this guy great this this isn't a duck this isn't fun um the goal is definitely to run a full season um we're gonna work towards that and truthfully this year was just so i could get comfortable in the car you know uh see how the team gelled together make sure that it was affordable for us and I think we checked all the boxes. So uh, we're going to add to our schedule this year and we'll be ready for hopefully a full season next year. And, you know, getting that first win is always a huge deal. But I think outside of having that on your resume, you have to learn to win. You have to learn a winning culture. And now you guys have that already built in. They're like, this is what it takes to win. Is that true? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're not all going to be like that. You know, I I know that. So, um, we're just going to go out there, man, do what we do and try to be the best at it. 
you know, and it's having that attitude where it, it, it helps quite a bit. Now, I always like to start talking with guys towards the interview where we, we start getting off more of the, the typical kind of questions. And, you know, do you do you follow other kinds of drag racing besides the NHRA kind of stuff? Do you follow no prep heads up racing? Do you check out anything else? Um, I've got a couple of buddies that race in the no prep stuff. Uh, to be honest with you, I've kind of lost touch with it. But not really. See, that that's it's interesting to see some guys, you know, they are watch anything, anything racing related. I'm one of those types. And if there's a race going on somewhere local within a so many hours drive, that's worth going to, I'm packing up and going to check it out. Heads up racing, any kinds of cool stuff like that. You know, again, it's probably because I hate my time and money, but it, it makes it fun. Yeah. I wish I could, but uh, Bernie's is a, uh you know, the real deal, contrary to popular belief, I do still turn wrenches and show up 90 hours a week to be able to build the uh, top fuel team. So um, like you said before, there's three places that I'm at. And that, and again, that probably makes things stay a heck of a lot successful for you as well on all sides <laughs> of the spectrum. Absolutely. Cause it, it, it's, it's always uh, interesting. I, I see a lot of other racers too, that uh, seems like racers and boats go hand in hand and it, it's not like, I've never seen a fast drag racer own a pontoon boat. It's usually some God awful 90,000 foot long boat with like four supercharged engines. I'm like, do you do anything to relax? Uh, I, I have a boat and it's, it's a nitro <laughs> and it's a bass boat that I've never fished off of, but it's got a nice healthy outboard motor and it's a lot of fun to tool around in. Nice that, you know, it, it it's, it's interesting to see that because it's, you know, you get someone like Eddie Hill who used to, you know, he came from nitro boat racing, which that's another thing I can't wrap my mind around is so being on the water is already inherently dangerous going fast. So let's just strap a nitro motor behind this thing and just, you know, let it rip. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Why not? What, what's the worst that could happen that you watch these races? It's like, all right, you're, you're definitely on you, those guys. I think are on the same spectrum as the nitro Harley racers. Those guys, again, different level of crazy. Yeah. I, I give my hat off to uh, Bob Malloy. He's, he's a badass. Yeah. That I, I still need to work on getting one of those guys on the show because pretty much every racer I talk to doesn't matter what they race is scared of nitro Harleys. I'm going to ask a nitro Harley racer point blank. What are you scared of? <laughs> like what? That, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex, aliens. I mean, what, what scares a Nitro race, a Harley racer? <laughs> that, that would terrify me immensely. But, Josh, our time here is coming to an end, and I like to give my guests their chance to turn it over to them, and they can be like John Force and thank all their sponsors and where everybody's at. So, you know, where they can find you out, where they can learn more, what they got going on. So I'm going to turn the floor over to you so you can thank your sponsors and who you need to thank. I appreciate you. Um, just thank you to uh, TechNet. You know, they've been with me for five years. Very grateful for them. Vance Auto Parts. Obviously, my Bernie Speed Shop family. Um, my wife, my daughter, my adopted dad who picked on me about my reaction time prior to the Gator Nationals. Thank you. It was the motivation I needed. <laughs> um, just a really good group of guys with the whole fearless racing team, Ron Douglas, you know, they're awesome. They're awesome. All the fans couldn't do it without you. And uh, see you in Atlanta. 
Well, Josh, I got to thank our sponsors, of course, AFR, Performance Distributors and Pro Chargers, being on board with us. Awesome talking with you. Hopefully we'll get to talk to you again. Are you going to Norwalk? Yes, sir. I will see you at Norwalk because I'm going to be there for a couple of days. So I will stop by and say hello. And once again, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I look forward to it.